0: Gonna have actors to places. Stand by for curtain call. Go. Stand by for house lights. Good. That's a wrap. Good show, everybody.
1: Welcome to Echo Offstage: Theater Women Speak. Echo Theater Dallas has been amplifying women's voices on stage since 1998. Now we invite you offstage, behind the curtain, for an intimate conversation with theater's most influential and innovative women. I'm your host, Katherine Whiteman, and I'm here for a conversation with Tina Parker. Tina is an actress, director, designer, and co-artistic director at Kitchen Dog Theater. She has recently appeared in the award-winning drama Minari and What If, as well as a recurring role on Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. She has received many acting and directing awards from Dallas-Fort Worth Critics Forum, Leon Raven Awards, D Magazine, and the Dallas Observer. But those are just the bullet points. (laughs) Tina, welcome to the show. (laughs) There is so much more to talk about. I'm so glad to have you here. Thanks for having me. Oh, well, it's it is absolutely a pleasure and an honor. So, let's start with that original question. How did this all begin for you? How did you get started in theater? We moved a lot when I was
0: a kid. My dad worked for GTE, if anybody remembers the phone company before AT&T, it was GTE and Southwestern Bell and they combined and blah blah blah. We moved a whole lot. We moved everywhere. And so I was having to start a new grade in a new city quite often, especially in elementary school. So I was a big ham. I was really good at reading and found that the way I could make friends the fastest was to make people laugh and i was really good at kickball those two things when i was in kindergarten um, the first graders needed somebody to be a top in the christmas play and i was very tall and very hammy and so my kindergarten teacher recommended me and i became the top in the christmas play and of course wave ham hammy mccamerton Um, and that began the love of theater i had a lot of teachers uh encourage me as far as reading went and back then in the olden times kids a lot of times you had to read what went along with the film strip which is crazy and i always volunteered to do it because i thought it was cool and i wanted to be an actor and you know win an oscar like we all did when we were children and also be a figure skating <laughs> champion and a horse jockey you know all of the things that are so attainable for a child so anyway <laughs> I had a lot of teachers that encouraged creativity and reading and I was just into it like you know I've always got the extra extra so you know I played men I played Geppetto I played you know Pinocchio like everything and I'd make be- beards out of yarn and draw like make my own costumes and you know I was probably just a weirdo but I had a lot of fun and it just kind of came naturally and had kids and teachers encouraging me to do it and so that's kind of how it got started if that re- remotely answers your question there was a time where I thought I'm going to be a was shocky, and I was already too tall. There was another time in fifth grade where I thought I was going to be a heart surgeon, which I have no idea why, because I was not good at science. Um, and then after that, it was always theater and acting and performing. I always just really loved it. So I got lucky in that regard. So
1: who knew that it was going to be a seminal <laughs> moment as a top? I know, right? <laughs> yeah. That just you know set lit that spark for you. But that, that's a delightful story because it's the kind of thing I think that kids are embarrassed to say but if somebody says it and they go oh she's cool <laughs> then they're they're no longer embarrassed to say it and they can go ahead and and kind of pursue that kind of thing too so i i for one am very glad you shared that story so i'm going to jump all the way to a bfa at southern methodist university go ponies yeah i mean the program is so extraordinarily well-known and turns out so many really good people. Tell me what the experience was like for you there and what lessons you learned.
0: I was there from 87 to 91. We were the first theater studies class ever at SMU. They just went away from the cut system um, where they, you know, they would take in a bunch of actors and then, you know, after your sophomore year, would be like, okay, you're not going to be an actor anymore and you're going to just do other things. So they decided to get to do away with that, rightfully so, and embrace the fact that there were Students coming in that wanted to be directors, wanted to be playwrights, wanted to be stage managers, et cetera. So my class was the first class of that. The big thing that I took away from my years at SMU one, I made connections. I mean, I wouldn't be involved with Kitchen Dog if I hadn't went to SMU at that time. And then also, I just think the training that we received: right? Dale Moffat, um, Luigi Salerni for directing, Paul Walsh, just teaching the just the love of the craft and techniques and and a- approach to acting and approach to text that we still use at Kitchen Dog. I mean, that's how we approach rehearsal. Looking at improv, looking at objectives, all of that good stuff. The table work—it um, all comes from the training that I received at SMU. And I met some of the people, like like Tim and like oh my god, there's so many Karen Parrish, who's in our company. There's so many people that are you know still involved with Kitchen Dog that are from those days. So it was a big springboard for me, it's needless to say. And if I didn't yeah. go there, you know, who knows where I would be, what I would be. Maybe I'd be a heart surgeon living in Des Moines. It,
1: it's a, or, a <laughs> or a horse jockey, or maybe a trainer. Yeah,
0: or, I was probably a trainer because literally I wanted to be that in first grade and I was already too tall and I became very depressed.
1: So you talked about the people that you were in school with. And I think frequently when I ask the mentor question, people expect to hear and answer, you know, some luminary but it sounds like some of the people that you were in school with who started Kitchen Dog were mentors to you already. Was that the case or am I am I digging too deep here?
0: I would say that's a fair answer. I think that I was inspired by them. I think that their work as a grad class was incredible, like watching them work as actors, studying. Their, like That's why they stayed in Dallas, because they just loved so much working together. And, you know, it was it had built an ensemble in this core unit of actors in this grad MFA class and they didn't see anybody with the kind of theater that they wanted to create currently in Dallas. And they're like, you know, we let's stay here and keep working. I was excited by the kind of work they were creating and to watch those guys up close and personally. And I was watching people's costumes, right? You know, when I was a sophomore, but getting to see them every night working, it was incredible.
1: Are there mentors that you think of that are those, well, you mentioned Dale, are those people?
0: Yeah, Dale Moffat for sure. He is, I would say probably a key person in my life as far as just his approach to the work and approach to rehearsing. And there's things that he did because I was also lucky enough to be in a show that he directed there. So just things that he would do in the room, like I still do to this day. He's probably the big one for me. And then is also, as far as directing, like. Luigi Salerni, Lou Salerni was our directing teacher at the time. And he was great because he was all about spectacle and just embracing the impossible. And so I, that kind of taught you how to dream a little bit as a director, encouraged you to look at different art forms to find your voice as a director. So I have a minor in art history, you know, because it, it, <laughs> that's I like to look at art and use that in my work as a director.
1: Absolutely. So so that it can inform your work. And you've got all of those levels of things that you can play from, which is fascinating. Right. And the art history department at SMU at the time was
0: incredible. I mean, Dr. Comini had been knighted by Austria. Like in her lectures were insane, you know, and so you're, it was just, you know, made you love art and actively want to seek it out wherever you went. So it's hard not to. And you, know, what's funny is like Tim also I think is a minor in art history. So it's like, you know, we all kind of had this kind of this synergy happening while we were there at SMU that um, I think has definitely continued to shape how we are now as adults. Um, yeah. And then you know I would say and this is just a fun weird story, but like we did have Andre de Shields. Tony winner Andre DeShields, who was uh, a Meadows, I want to say he was an endowed acting like a position or not an act. I, he was a, maybe a director. I can't remember what it, the exact, exact name of the position he was, but he was there for two years. Um, and I got to work with him the first year. He directed me, and funny thing happened on the way to the forum, which, and he was, what was so great about having him there is he is the antithesis of like, let's do table work, let's figure out objectives, let's do all this. He's like, what it's like in the real world. So he, you know, is like, looking at you know what do you got right now why aren't you funny like the why aren't you funny like that guy can you do this can you do that where's your headshot like, it was fantastic, um, just as far as real worlds. And that approach, too, was great. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I was like, okay, I, you know, it's interesting how you, this, th- what you're saying here pr- produces this result. And then I can also go at it from an internal doing homework from Dale's approach or whatever. So it was it was fabulous in that regard. And truly, like, I think the the work, that's the thing that's always been a tenant of Kitchen Dog is like, you do the homework, and then it's, you know, then it's, it's there to support you and you leave the homework behind. And the thing that's always been exciting to me about kitchen dogs work is that it's, we, I like to think of it as like acting from the feet up. So it's work that smells and is 3D and it's like full body, full contact acting is the way I like to describe it. Not that I'm like touching everyone or anything like that, but it's just like really like, and it and some of it comes because to that because of the kind of space that we're in. It's um, very intimate. You're really close to me. So if, if I'm phoning it in, you're going to know. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? You're going to
1: be able to see yeah, that. Absolutely. Yeah,
0: absolutely. So you've got to have that, that work behind you so that you can see what the possibilities are and have the mad, like be in the moment listening and, oh my God, Gosh, we can go here. Oh, that table just broke. Let's figure out how we deal with it and still use the tax to move it forward. You know, so it's it gives you that
1: sense of play. Strangely, absolutely, and 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 really makes you work all of those muscles that you've been spending for five years. Home, right now you get to now you get to see it in action uh, in a way that's different than performing within kind of the safety of of an academic environment because right. everybody's who who loves you is going to love you. <laughs> All of these new people, you know, everybody who comes to see Kitchen Dog, they may be a fan, but they're still checking you out to see if you know what you're doing. Well, and
0: too, like when you're in college or like when you're in like high school or college, like a lot of times maybe, you know, I'm I'm not an ingenue. I've never been an ingenue. My voice, vocally, I've always had this, my voice and my body, like I'm just not an ingenue. So I played a lot of, I I always joked that my pillow always had a slight dusting of gray hairspray. Like I was always the character actor. I was always, you know, oh, I'm the funny best friend or whatever I'm anti-mame or whatever you know like re- you're you know good times so when you get out of college it's like well you still have to be cast for what you look like so how do you you know that that's always a big kind of learning curve Is like yeah you're not going to be playing the mother and night mother you know you're too young or whatever <laughs> like you're they, they're not going to gray your hair even though you did go to state with that duet you know it's not going to happen for you so
1: yeah not not while you're in your no 20s. exactly so, so yeah, <laughs> make that a, a long term right exactly yeah. So t- let's talk a little bit about those early days at Kitchen Dog when you joined. What were some of the challenges that you guys faced in uh, they've been around, I think, for three years when you joined? Yeah, they
0: had been. I what, The first show I ever did with them was in 93 and they were still um, homeless at the time. So we were doing work either. They did. The first show was the Bubba pawn shop in Deep Ellum. <laughs> Dave's Art and Pawn for all you old timers out there. Um, sweaty, sweaty, sweaty. I wasn't involved with that, but I saw it and it was very hot right before I graduated from college. But they kind of alternated between the Undermain, our good friends at the Undermain, who helped us, helped us in our early days and have helped us since. God love the Undermain. So the Undermain, and then we also were at the Stone Cottage, thank you, Water Tower. Uh, and they kind of alternated between those spaces. And there were a couple of random spaces in between. And then they were approached to do the first show at the McKinney Avenue Contemporary. Kitchen Dog was invited, luckily, so lucky, after the patrons who were building that space came and saw a few shows at Kitchen Dog. And they wanted Kitchen Dog to be the resident company of this incredible art space. And we were there for 20 years. So my first show was with them at the Stone Cottage. And then they moved into the MAC once the MAC was built. And then I worked with them as an actor and a director a couple of times and then joined the company in '96. And started working for the company full time as like the admin person, the box office, catch all finances, whatever, 99. So I didn't have to wait tables anymore uh, because I couldn't stay up till four trying to do all that stuff. Uh, so they found some money for me to do it and then became co-archist director with Chris Carlos in 2005 once the founding AD Dan Day uh, left. So I'd say the early days, it was really about just, you know, like a lot of folks, like Finding space, finding money to pay people, finding the plays that, you know, are exciting and would fit in a space where you have four dimmers or whatever. And what's bizarre... sad i don't know it's like we still struggle for space and it's
1: 2022 you know and that's after being around for as long as you have with the reputation that you have with the acclaim that you have right and you're looking for well that's what i'm saying like
0: everybody not i mean kitchen dog now owns a building y'all like we own a building we just
1: yeah i've read about yeah we own
0: a building we're raising (laughs) the money to turn it into a theater but we own it which is great um but yeah. I'm just saying, like, for the theater scene in Dallas, like, to me, it's crazy that we're still, you know, still dealing with there's no space to perform. in. I mean, I know that's everywhere. Um, but, you know, I don't know. I just wish we would get some more incubator spaces and spaces that are more affordable and accessible to groups of all sizes and budget sizes. Because um, a lot of the spaces right now that are available are just they're too expensive. Like, I'm like, how do you, how would Kitchen Dog like in the uh, thinking about Kitchen Dog in the early days? And I know inflation, all that. But I'm like, I don't think we would have made it out of Memphis. If the spaces that were available now at the prices, they are like, I don't, I don't
1: know how people do it. I do always wonder this too. Um, we've got a city that truly does have wonderful mm-hmm. art. We've got a gorgeous symphony. We've got a beautiful opera. We've got all of these incredible theater companies that have so much talent. You go to just about any theater in the area and you, and you want to go back, Right. you know? So why is Dallas, which says it wants to be an international city or a city for the art, what's the missing step? We've
0: had this conversation a few times and I and it and people sometimes comes back to like oh well, money and I'm like there's a lot of money here like that doesn't make sense to
1: me that doesn't that doesn't make sense to me (laughs) (laughs) um Yeah, there's there's something at cross purposes or something that's just not there. But I tell you what, I admire Kitchen Dog and every other theater company that is still plugging away at it and still bringing beautiful, beautiful work to the Dallas audiences because the Dallas audiences do want that. I know, man. Yeah, that's so, it. I mean, I'm like, anybody who
0: can put on a play, my hat's off to you because I'm not <laughs> kidding. Like it's so, and it's not me being like, oh, I just love everyone. Like, it is hard work. It's hard work for... I'm, it's hard work for the people who are at the top too. So it's like, man, you put that on. Give yourself a pat on the back because it's not
1: it's not easy business or whatever. For sure, it's not. And and when you when you then look at that, live with that for as long as you have with Kitchen right. Dog, and you're still around and you're still doing innovative, interesting, important things. What do you tell? Talk a little bit about that process of 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 keeping with it. Mm. Because you guys have not given up. (laughs) And that's, you know, you might have felt like giving up.
0: Yeah, some days, and of course, you know, especially after and during the pandemic, I mean, I think everybody had a, for lack of a better term, a come to Jesus of like, okay, what, you know, what is my life? And what am I doing? And is this still important? You know, and we can't produce and like, I don't know, it's just been so crazy. When you're an artist and you can't do the thing that is your job and or the thing that sustains you, it's like, okay, well, I'm not very good at cooking and I'm not very good at, you know, Zoom video, you know, like, you know, like I'm like, I'm okay at making videos. I've gotten better, actually. I know how to edit and do stuff now. But still, you know, it's like, oh, my gosh, it's just such a weird it's been weird. And I I definitely have days where I struggle with, you know, what am I doing? (laughs) You know, and I'm also at an age like I'm fully I'm 52 years old, so I'm probably at some point just going like, am I having a midlife crisis But I can't afford a convertible? So what are you going to do? Um yeah. <laughs> So I don't, I don't know. I think, um, it always comes back to the, for me, it always comes back to the mission statement, uh, looking around, seeing, finding plays that it still excite you. Like when you read, there's nothing quite like that. When you find a, like, you're just like, I can't find anything. And you read that, finally read that one play and you're like, I have to do this. I have to direct it or I have to be in it, or I can't wait to see these people do this or these company members, you know, design it or whatever. Like there's nothing like that thrill. Um, and sending, you know, texting them immediately and being like, Oh my God, Oh my God, you've got to read this. Play, you gotta read this play um and then you're like oh okay that, it, it, that's why i do it or like you're on stage and that moment clicks and you're like and that's why i do it right and it's easy especially i'm sure lots of people are struggling with this like as an artist because it's been so long a lot of times we haven't even been in rooms with people so you've kind of forgotten that through that the thrill of it you know the thrill of seeing the audience and feeling their breath which you didn't want to feel during the pandemic but you know feeling their collective breath and their laughter or their you know you know, sharp inhales or, you know, you know, shock or whatever or collapse or whatever, you know, like the thing that that fuel is like, you know, just we haven't had any fuel for so long. Um, So it's kind of it's easy to sit, kind of sit and look at your life and try to reevaluate it. But we've kept going, I think, because of the mission statement and coming back to it and surrounding yourself with company members and artists um like minded folks that are you know interested in that kind of work and it's still exciting and i think when it's not then i need to leave like that's that's the reality whether i want to do it or not but you know if it's not exciting yeah. then you need to get out like that's just how it
1: works it, yeah it, it, because there are so many ways that are easier to make money yes than working in theater it's true yeah so many. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, so many come to, to mind. I don't know how any of the things that pop into my head would necessarily feed an artistic spirit. No. And I think that's the thing that we bump up against is, but you know what? I need the energy from this thing more than I need that convertible midlife crisis. Be damned. Absolutely. <laughs> so, 100%. So you guys had a, a, a series of, of difficult <clears throat> moves after. Oh, Lord. <laughs> I don't. Sorry, I'm digging in that night right Please. now, Tina, so Woo. don't hate me. <laughs> but you, you're you you're sort of in a good space right yes. now. You've got a building that you're going to renovate and you're in a good space right now. So let's talk a little bit about what you've learned in, in that process of, of getting, you know, get, getting, okay, we've got this big goal, but we're still going to be able to make theater right here, right now.
0: It, what it came, what it pointed out to me is like, one, you can make theater anywhere. Um, you don't have to have all the dimmers and bells and whistles and the costumes. I mean, like, at one point we had to move a show, uh, and we had a really elaborate that We got, you know, it was one of the there was all the crackdown on spaces, not having the right COs and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and we were in a space that we thought was right and it it wasn't right. And so we, they shut down a show that had a week to go. Um, and it was, you know, of course the one show that was really selling that season. Cause that's always how it is. Um, because that's that yeah, works. that's absolutely yeah. how it works. But you know, we, we were thanks to our friends at second thought, we were able to move the show, I think for two days into their space. And literally like we, I mean, the set was amazing drew wall had built this amazing set designed by claire devries and um we couldn't take you know obviously we couldn't take it with us so it was just like we just brought props and parts of stuff or whatever and it was still an amazing show even without all the stuff it was about two people in a room duking it out and it was great um and if nothing else all those moves so many moves oh god it was woo. that if you didn't want if you weren't sure if you wanted to do it there were plenty of opportunities for us to have given up for sure by that point um, and I know there were times where we we're both just all of us were like, I'm so old, I can't move anymore. Like I, 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 I was like, we just maybe we just should move a, operate a moving company because we got so good at loading a U-Haul. And so <laughs> I'm not kidding, man. They're like one of the pictures literally like they interviewed us because we had to move another show. There's another building that we had found didn't have the right CEO, of course. And so we had to go to a rehearsal room. Thank you, Dallas Theater Center, a rehearsal room. And that's where we performed, not equipped for a show. So we had to bring in all sorts of equipment and stuff. But the picture of the morning news, back when the morning news had art coverage, um, that was me being sassy. Woo, shade. Um, Speaking of the world of, you know, let's be an international city of the arts. We don't even have coverage, so whatever. Um, But there was a picture of us (laughs) <laughs> on the back of a U-Haul, that was like we should just start a moving company, and that's what how we'll fund all the plays because we're really good at packing the U-Haul. <laughs> you guys know
1: how to make that part happen, you know. Sometimes you. we take the deals that we learn, and uh, I it would um, it would break my heart to see Kitchen Dog on the side of the moving. <laughs> I know, stand. right? It really would that at that point, I'm just throwing down my hat and saying, forget this. This is just I'm moving to another town. You and town me, that really you and me both, because we're
0: all. Get, that's the other thing too is you know Chris, myself, and Tim, we were the three, you know, kind of executive staff of Kitchen Dog, we were laughing because we are like, we are, you know, pardon my French, we are getting too old for this shit, like straight quote from, <laughs> from Di- or whatever it was that, what is that movie? Lethal Weapon? I was like, oh my God, because you're, everybody's back's all hunched over and you're like trying to carry the one platform and everybody's all sweaty and you're like, okay, time to direct the play. It's like,
1: oh man, you yeah. can't do it anymore. Yeah, there's, there's, there's definitely a um, young man's game. Yes portion of a theater career and you know when you're past absolutely and you know and that's what all of a lot of people
0: you know i've talked to other leaders recently and a lot of people are experiencing that you know because like theater three is under construction so they've had to move locations like every show they've been in a different location and i was talking to their TD recently and john leach and he was just like oh my gosh i can't wait for the day where i don't have to have the show in a truck or whatever you know it's just like everywhere we go it's new
1: new learning or whatever and it's like it, you know just like oh my god i Worn out. Well, if, if there is any gold at the end of the rainbow, all of the things that all of us as as theater artists have learned over this past, I'm going to even say five years, because we were dealing with growing yeah. pains, I think, prior yeah. to the pandemic. And the pandemic really pushed that into focus. Yeah. In yeah. addition to preventing us from doing the things that we wanted to do. And I think that, you know, what don't kill you makes you stronger. I think that we're going to see some really incredible things happening at the end of this, whatever the end looks right? like. I think. That there's some fabulous stuff coming down the pike. So before I move on to my next section of questions, because I've got to get into the the new the National New Play Network, because awesome. that's just fabulous. I just want to give you an opportunity to talk about being an artistic director, because uh, you know you've got so many things that you do right. as a performer, as as a designer, as a director. But that part of helping to frame the vision, mm-hmm. how does that feed your artistic spirit?
0: It's interesting. I think you know the. We have a small staff. So, you know, as as far as being an artistic director, it's not like maybe what an artistic director looks like at some other companies, because I do a lot. We all do a bunch of jobs. And I joke that, like, (laughs) I'll be dressed in a cot like this was a story from the Mac. But I was starring in Much Ado About Nothing as Beatrice. And, you know, people will come back and ask me like patron questions or, you know, like we're getting ready to go. And, like, literally one time somebody came back and they're like, oh, somebody showed up. We need to do something with this reservation or whatever, getting ready to go. And meanwhile, I'm also plunging the toilet backstage. So I was like, this is it in a nutshell. You know, everybody thinks it's so glamorous to be this. And, you know, there are parts that are awesome. Like, I get to read amazing plays. I get to... Work with incredible artists and in our in, in company and all of that kind of great stuff. And it is about like, like I said, the mission statement has been with us since the company was formed. And so it's my mine and Chris's duty to shepherd that mission through the kind of work we do. But that goes from play selection to what's presented on stage and, and you know, and making sure that what is presented on stage is in accordance to our, you know, what the standards that you think about when you think about Kitchen Dog. And then there's not fun stuff like, okay, Chris, you need to supervise the build and Tina, you need to run the contracts and pay people or you need to run in or figure out the problem solving on this because these two folks aren't seeing eye to eye and the set's not, you know, this, we need to figure this out with the set or, you know, there's lots of non-glamor, like plunging the toilet or going to get the bank, you know, figuring out the Zoom, you know, whatever. <laughs> like i them just edit some videos to entice people. And you're like, Van- fantastic or whatever. So there's lots of non, you know, that at a bigger theater, yeah, there would be departments that would do the different marketing jobs or contract jobs or whatever. A Kitchen Dog, we're smaller. That's, you know, we're, that's why I think we've been able to, <laughs> our little ship has been able to make all these crazy curves of having to move all the time and crazy stuff with COs and buying a building and this, that, and the other, you know, like in the pandemic, you know, like we were able to keep everybody employed because we're small. <laughs> like if we had a big staff, yeah, no, that might've been a struggle.
1: All means nimble. It does. It means nimble, whether you are a theater company or you're a corporation, if you're smaller, you're, you've just got more flexibility. You may not have a huge foundation, but you've got more flexibility and you guys have done great things with that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's, and I think I don't know. I, I'm trying to think if there's anything else as far as artistic. <laughs> it's funny because like I really have just in this pandemic, like I feel like I need to go and sit in a like a, a sweat lodge and kind of get my vision back. You know what I'm saying? Like kind of re-energizing that I know that's inside of me. If that makes sense, that's so. Yeah. It, that sounds yeah. so hippy dippy, but it's like you need it sometimes. Sometimes it's like easy to lose sight when you're just like. How do we, you know, if you're just lost in the day to day grind, how do you find the ability to still dream? You know, how do you you know, still inspire yourself? Because, you, you know, that's the thing, too. It's like, yeah, we present stuff and people love it's great. And like, oh, people want to have conversations. Oh, yeah, you're meeting your objectives. It's like, well, what's what are you doing to nurse yourself as an artist? So I think that's the thing for me that I'm trying to look at this year is like you got to let's turn turn up the Bunsen burner on your, you know, on your on your own internal desires as an artist and you know see what's happening
1: i heard somebody use the phrase once i've got to get into the space where i can seduce my muse Hell yeah
0: i'm yes yes you know, ma'am
1: i gotta seduce my muse absolutely. and get my muse coming back in this direction and i thought man that is such a statement about what it means to be an artist because sometimes when you're just down to the nitty-gritty there is nothing there to seduce the no muse. absolutely but you need to muse. yeah, yeah i mean
0: it's like <laughs> yeah that. otherwise you lose sight of the things you want to do you yeah. know and that, and that could be like, and that's always my advice to younger artists is like, make a list because it's so easy. Like, what are the things you want to do? And not, and not just like lofty crap of like, I want to win a Tony or I'm going to be a movie star or whatever. Like, that's great. Cool. But what are the little things? Like, what are some achievable things? You know, and then then put the dreams too. And say like, and then revisit it every year because it's so easy to all of a sudden you look up and I've experienced this firsthand is all of the old, you know, all of us oldies, You know, you get you get to a point in your life, and you're like, oh crap! I lost sight of the fact that this had I wanted that, and I didn't even I I didn't even address that for five years. So now I can't even do that. You know, so it's important. I think it's important to to do that. So now that I'm like older and wiser, I'll start doing it. You know, for my sunset years.
1: (laughs) <laughs> yes, absolutely. Because <laughs> these are just as important as the other absolutely. ones were just saying. Absolutely. It. So let me let me ask you about the National New Play yeah. Network. So Kitchen Dog Theater is a founding yep. member. Tell us a little bit about how that partnership began. Um,
0: the National New Play Network was born, was a brainchild of David Goldman and oh my gosh, I'm blanking on his name. He was the founding AD of the O'Neill. But they had a conversation just talking about. Hell, there's all this amazing new plays happening regionally, but everybody just waits for New York, right? So there, you know, so a lot of plays were incredible plays were dying on the vine in their regions, people not knowing that there's an incredible play by Jonathan Norton in Dallas, Texas, or. You know, James Iams in Philadelphia or whoever, you know, like you know, Elaine Romero over in Arizona It's like, oh, this had this amazing premiere. Oh, but it was great. Well reviewed. But nobody heard about it. It didn't go to New York. It didn't get reviewed. So it didn't make it down the regional circuit. So they're like, how can we basically how can we circumvent the New York down system and make it regional up? Right. Um, and yeah. so they started looking for theaters around the country, different shapes, sizes, missions, budgets, all of that. Um, who were committed to doing new plays and they went around the country and David kind of set up interviews and like we met him in an airport (laughs) in the DFW and talked to him Uh, and then you know there was I think at the beginning there were 14 theaters that came on board and we all met in Chicago and we're just excited about new plays and it came it was born from that that you know and so uh, now it's in its I don't know what year it's in now 24th here And it's been an incredible resource for us. Not only a, a pipeline for us to both share plays that we're discovering and playwrights, we're discovering either through our New Works Festival or local playwrights that we're really excited about um, and get their work out in the country. We're also able to take in stuff that we would have never heard of. And besides that, like you've got, you know, like-minded <laughs> compatriots that you're like, hey, how did you do this? How did you promote this player? How did you survive this? Or how did you create that educational program? Or what's the salary for this position at your place? sir? Or- Um, Hey, I'm having an issue. Can you help me? It's like, here you go. Here, this, we did this. And it's, if nothing else, it's like, it sucks right now. And you're like, it does. Let's commiserate, you know, (laughs) for real. real. So it's just kind of nice. So you, you don't become, it's so easy to become siloed in your, in your region or your town and the drama or the, whatever, the hierarchy or whatever that's going on in your town. It's easy to get siloed in that and lose sight of the big picture. And it's like, um, this way you kind of get to be in all of it without having to go to New York and wait for like, oh, the Times hated it. It's like, because that's the other thing that was happening as well is like, You know, a play would get done at Humana, let's say, and it got, you know, maybe it wasn't ready. It wasn't ripe. You know, (laughs) it happens all the time. Um, So the review in the Times wasn't that good. Um, And it's dead, but it's still a good play. So that's the other thing, too, with the NNPN, one of the first, the flagship program, the NNPN is the continued live fund for new plays. Kitchen Dogs, I want to say we participated in it. 14 or 15 times but it basically is like a rolling world premiere so a playwright off the bat everybody ha- three th- at least three theaters have to commit to doing the world premiere before any press so that Playwright gets three productions guaranteed and they get to work on the play and develop the play. And sometimes it's, you know, can be more theaters like one of the ones we did Alabaster. I want to say it had nine productions lined up because people were so passionate about the play. Um, But, you know, and you learn from it, you share the, you know, if somebody made the really difficult prop. A lot of times that prop gets shared or maybe you have you struggled to cast that role in your town. You can always reach out, and you know maybe there's a possibility of bringing somebody in from a different production. So it's yeah. a really incredible network, and they are, it's, and frankly, like because I know right now as far as equity, diversity, inclusion, accessibility, which is you know paramount that we you know we all got to move we all got to move forward. We can't go back to normal. I just got to say that. Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that yes. And they're leading the way. They're leading the charge and making resources available to members. They're leading by example with the way they've shaped their board. Um, and it it makes it you know like a lot of us smaller like in Kitchen Dogs one of the smaller budgeted organizations in that in that uh, in the National Plan of Work but it makes it possible for us to have some access to some resources that and workshops that I we would not have been able to afford on our own for sure so. So it's been it's been incredible. And I'm so glad that we went to the airport and embraced this crazy idea (laughs) in an airport bar with David Goldman, Um, because some of our best some of my best like theater friends and people that I, you know, I consider my colleagues for life have come from that organization. And they'll always be a
1: resource for you. So. The commitment is real. I've got in my notes that in the past five years, fully 86% of your main stage productions were regional or world premieres. Yeah. So when you say new plays, you mean 86% of our shows are going to be new plays. Yeah, that- what do you think is the biggest benefit of doing that? To Well, certainly to your audience, it's a wonderful thing, but what is the biggest benefit to, to, to the theater and to this region to bring all the new work that you bring?
0: Well, I think... Um, there's nothing wrong with the, the 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 old play the old plays. That's the wrong way to describe it. I mean, there are classics that I still love and adore and would do in five seconds today. Um, there are definitely groups that do them and do them well. Here, I think that there's, but if we're going to truly move the conversation forward, you need to you need to bring stories that reflect the audience that you have. You need to have stories that reflect what's going on in the world around you. That's right in the mission statement of Kitchen Dog. So new work speaks to that, speaks to it instantly usually you know what I mean um as far as just the kind of energy the kind of you know the topics that are brought to light uh in the plays that we we find and and I think I feel like uh, a lot of times the problems that are maybe happening you know issues that are brought up in plays in a different that are maybe they're set in Pennsylvania or they're set in California or whatever they apply to the house too so I feel like there's they're great catalysts for conversation that we've found in new plays that, you know, that otherwise we wouldn't, otherwise Dallas audiences wouldn't have a chance to see it. I mean, because they're not the play that's going to be done in New York. I mean, they're just not, um, hopefully they find, you know, there's some traction regionally. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. Um, but you know, we believe in that voice and we want to put our resources behind that voice. And we've been fortunate to have subscribers and ticket buyers and donors and a board that frankly supports that mission and supports the kind of work we want to do.
1: Um, so hopefully that continues, I,
0: <laughs> you know.
1: Look, in the in the same vein, in that same vein of, of diversity and inclusion mm-hmm. and accessibility, you guys have done something really lovely. In uh, 2017, you initiated a program that would give access to your shows to some underserved audiences. Can you talk about what that program yeah, is? Yeah,
0: we were actually, it's a, our program is called Admit All, um, and it's we provide uh, 20 free tickets every night to every show show. So regardless, like there's always 20 tickets. They're always at the box office turning a half hour. Um, cause normally our house seats 99. So 20 tickets are available. First come first serve basis. All you got to do is give us your name and your zip code usually, and maybe your email if you want, but just your zip code. So the grant people will be satisfied. And that's it. That's all I want. Uh, and then you can see a show for free. Um, because my whole thing is like the kind of mission we have, if we're going to have a conversation, everybody's got to, you know, you can't have a conversation with yourself. Like I want, pe- I want people from all different, you know, different neighborhoods, different communities, different walks of life, different races, ages, whatever's orientations. They need to be in the room to have the conversation. Otherwise it's like, oh, let's, let's preach to the, you know, wealthy, rich, liberal people or whatever. It's like, Okay, that's dumb. Like that's not an act, that's not a good conversation to
1: have. Um it's an incomplete conversation. It's an incomplete conversation, conversation is. is the
0: right thing to say. It's good to have it's yeah. good to hold a mirror up and show people, you know, hey, let's look at this. But you need to have a you know the room, the room needs to reflect the kind of story you have. We were inspired to create that program, next uh, blood, who's a member of an NPN, a uh, founding member. Jack Ruler, maestro, who's retiring this year, Uh, he was the same thing. He's like, we're in this amazing Somali community in Minneapolis. They won't come. Like, why, why? You know? And so it wasn't only just about, you know, and they have their own, they have their own space. So they found that it was not only about let's supply free tickets, you know, they have their thing is called radical hospitality. Um, but they also provide, because they have a space, you need a place to have your community meeting. What is it that would make, what would make you want to come here? Is it childcare? Is this, and he's like, and then the thing is, is like, whatever the answer, you got to do it. Like, you can't just say, hey, what do you need? They're like, we need pizza. And it's like, you don't provide any pizza. Um, That's, you know, a dumb version, but you know you know what I mean? So our hope is that, you know, we started in 2017. Obviously we're in a space that we rent. So there's, we can't provide a community meeting space or anything at this point. The hope is though, when we open our own space, that that program will evolve and we can sit down with community leaders and people in our neighborhood and be like, well, what would make you want to come here? Like what, like, what do you, what do you see in this? Like have frank conversations, but what do you see? Are you seeing yourself reflected on stage? What would make you want to come here? What would make it possible for you to come here? Is it transportation? Is it childcare? Is it free tickets? And figure out the way to make it work to where people would want to come and feel like they, this is a place because you know, we're not fancy. Kitchen Dog isn't like, oh, you got to have $11 to park and you got to wear a suit. Like, you can wear so long as you have clothes on, you can see a play at Kitchen Dog. You don't have to have money. I can get you there on dark, you know? Like, so that's that's what excites me. And that one thing that really excites me, thanks for bringing it up, about our new building is the potential of that like really becoming a place where the community is invested and wants to come to. You know, even if it's just like, oh, I just want to come and look at art and have a drink in your lobby.
1: Great. I want to use your free Wi-Fi. That's what I need. It's like fabulous. Let's figure it out. Come come in, because eventually you're going to hear something from that other room over there and you're going to want to know what's going on. And then you add another piece to that puzzle. We're going to take a very brief intermission, but don't go anywhere, because when we come back for Act Two, we'll be talking about Tina's work in film and television, including Fred. Francesca Liddy from Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. Dear listeners, this episode of Echo Offstage is sponsored by Echo Theater, the Southwest premier theatrical organization dedicated to producing works created by Women Plus, our one time Echo donors, and the Echo 100. We would love to add your name to that list. If you appreciate Echo offstage and want to support our work, you can do so by sponsoring an episode of the podcast or even an entire season, and I will thank you by name on the show. If you would like to support all of the wonderful programs that Echo produces, the Echo 100 would be the best fit for you. The Echo 100 is a select group of donors who pledge ongoing financial commitment to sustain the mission of Echo Theater, and you too can join the Echo 100 for as little as $100 a year. By making your tax-deductible gift recurring, you allow Echo to better plan for our financial and artistic future. For more information, visit echotheater.org support hyphen us. Find out how you can help support Echo Theater in our fight for gender parity on stage. Our shout out spotlight this week, shines on Soul Rep Theater Company for the premiere of their original short film, Flesh and Bone, February 12th at 7 p.m. at the Texas Theater. Set in a fictitious Dallas, Texas juke and chicken joint run by Putin and Abe, this short film features a cast of eccentric characters who rely on blues music and each other to express their love, fear, joy, and pain. After the film, be sure to download our Season 1 episode featuring Flesh and Bone's creator Anika McMillan-Herrod and Tanya Holloway. And our Season 3 Roundtable episodes feature Tanya Holloway. Can't make it this weekend? The film will also be available to stream from February 14th through March 6th, 2022. Visit soulrep.org for more information. Before we dive back into our conversation, don't forget to follow Echo Theater on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. That's where you can get exclusive sneak peeks at our upcoming guests and even a chance to submit your own question, which I might ask our guest at the end of each episode. Welcome back to Act Two of Echo Offstage. We're continuing our conversation with Tina Parker. So I want to talk a little bit about your career in acting for the camera. When you get a script, what are the things that you do to prepare for the role for TV film as opposed to stage?
0: I actually kind of, I, I, I'll i be honest, I approach them the same as far as just looking at it as far as what's the character, what's what's the situation. A lot of times when you get these scripts, you don't get the whole thing. So You have to kind of make up your own story for what it is for the two scenes or the one scene or the three lines you've got, right? And I think the most, but I will say the one thing that is different, and this was the most important lesson that I learned in my whatever career I guess of doing film and TV because when I first started out you always be like okay when I read this this is the kind of person it is this is it I'm going to do this thing you know it's she's supposed to be this way or whatever and you know I wouldn't book it because the thing that's <laughs> the thing you've got to realize is they're calling in you for you Um, and so you've got to brace what about this role is uniquely you that's the th- that's when you're going to start booking and that's my one of my favorite stories actually from Breaking Bad times because that's I think you know one of the big roles that I've had and thank God thank you Lord for that role, I just will say that. Uh, it was, you know, uh, casting locally here um, for, you know, different parts. There was a woman named Tony Cobrock and she was casting. Um, I got the 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 side, you know, and stuff's blacked out and all this kind of stuff, so you don't really know what it's for. You don't know what it's going on. And you, I read it, the side, and I think, oh, this is like blonde, skinny, big boobs, because there was a joke about boobs. Secretary, you know, and I was like, that's not me. Like I told you before, like I'm not, I was not an ingenue. I don't sound, and, you know, anytime I get sent out on young mom, I'm like, I would always try to be like, I'm a young mom. And it's like, you know, so fake. You're like, you're not going to book it because you're not a young mom or whatever. So you just have to, once you start leaning into like, well, they're calling you in because either there's something about you that you like. Um, so you have to figure out what it is in you that applies to this role. So when I read the thing in Breaking Bad, I thought it was going to be this way. And I was like, well, I'm not that. I'm not blonde and skinny and I'm not that thing. So I was like, well, she's really salty. I'm that. That's great. Um, what do I, what do I? What can I wear that I feel sexy in? And I, <laughs> I wore this rock I I was kind of into swing dancing at the time so I had this kind of rock black and red kind of rockabilly and it It was an old Betsy Johnson so it made me look super curvaceous um very sassy did my hair did my makeup I felt like I looked really like a million bucks I felt like I looked great and I walk in and I was like it is what it is right you know he makes comments about my boobs and my butt so I'm like okay let's just go for it you know salty just just me at the club. And I walk in and, and there are lots of blondes with big boobs in their business, you know, <laughs> business outfits. And I'm not saying kids like go out and dress like that's wacky. Like it's not about dressing wacky. I was just like, well, what's being said in the scene? You know, the comments he's making this is what led me to this outfit. So I was like, this is how it makes me feel good. So maybe it'll give me a good audition. Went in, had a great, I mean, everybody looked at me first off like, what's up crazy? And I was like, oh, well, it is what it is. You know, this is all I can do. Did it. Didn't hear anything. Nothing. So I was like, I didn't book it. But I felt great. And the, the casting, Tony was like, it was awesome. Like, you're hilarious. And I was like, great. And from that, she called me in for lots of other stuff. is great. So literally, I'm in an audition for Young Mom, some commercial. I'm not going to book it. I'm sitting there, you know, waiting. And uh, I get a call from my agent. They're like, can you be on a plane in three hours? Whoa. Yeah. No. yeah. And so I was like. Yes. Because luckily I wasn't in a play. Right. You know, because that's the thing is like that's the other thing is like you're when you lead this dual life of like, I'm in theater, I love theater. But then it's like when a film comes along, it's like it's always at the most interopportune time. You're doing a play. How do you fix it? How do you work it? So luckily I wasn't doing any shows at the time. So I was like, absolutely. So I threw stuff in a bag. <laughs> like, I had a roommate at the time. I was like, you're watching the cat. Got <laughs> got out of here. Um, and you know, then come to find out later, like force, you know, the fourth season of Breaking Bad, they do a podcast and they ask Vince, cause that's when I have my big scene with Brian Cranston and they, they interview Vince. And they're talking about like, how did you find her and whatever. And my friend texts me, he's like, oh my God, you have to listen to this podcast. Cause he talks about casting you. And I was like oh yeah you know because you know they're amazing there. and he was like yeah they kept showing me all these like stereotypical you know these ladies and I was like that's not what I want like I want Saul, Saul has different tastes I want there to be a different I want him to have a lady that challenges him and then I and this casting director who excelled me for lots of stuff so no shade on her she showed she's like well I have his tape I think it's really good I don't think she's right for it I don't think she's you know she you know physically, you know, whatever. I don't know if she's right. So she showed it to him. She's like, that's what I want. And so that's how I booked it, you know? And so, you know, then that happened, which was great. Like it was, it's a, I love it. That's one of my favorite stories, but that long story longer, that's the thing. That's the big aha moment is, you know, what is it with film and TV when you've got three lines or you've got, you read a part and you're like, this is so not who I think of myself as. It's like, well, then what about me is this person? And that's the thing you got to lean into. And that's the ones I book. Like when I'm just like, I don't try to overthink it when I don't try to be like, oh, and I'm going to dress because this is what they want. It's like, no, no, let's figure out what's going on the scene. Do that. What is it uniquely you? Because there's probably 5,000 people doing
1: the I'm stereotypical young mom or whatever. So, you know, you, they were giving them table salt. And what he really wanted was your pink Himalaya. So go that's, with pink Himalaya. That's
0: <laughs> what I'm saying. Or, or, you know, a sexy Betsy Johnson. Here's my butt in the camera. You know, what are you going to yeah. do?
1: Cook the part. That's what you're going to do. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's brava. <laughs> that's yeah. Love it.
0: And I highly so, recommend that like, there is a great, um, speaking of Breaking Bad, Brian Cranston has this amazing book that he, memoir of his, where he has all different stories throughout his life. And there's stories about him being an actor. And that's one of the things that he he has that's that's in there is talking about, like, what about you is in this role? That's the thing that's going to
1: break. And that's ever since then, I'm like, boom, let's do it. Let's go. Yeah, so That is the best possible advice. Everybody needs to hear that. We maybe need to just <laughs> excerpt that and put it, you know, in social media. That's great <laughs> advice. So the character that you played, um, for folks that might not be familiar with either Breaking Bad, I think there may be four people. Uh, not familiar with Breaking Bad, better call Saul. Can you tell us a little bit about Francesca?
0: Yeah, Francesca is um, the long-suffering legal secretary of Saul Goodman, who uh, we appear, I think our first season was, season three, Uh, they basically kind of introduced our characters or introduced Saul specifically as one they needed somebody to lighten up the show a little bit. And, you know, they brought in because it was pretty dark. And so they they needed somebody where there was that potential, but they also needed like, they're going to need a lawyer. They're going to need somebody who can run interference, who can clean up messes, who can launder money, who can do different things, Um, you know? And so that's how our characters were were born. Uh, And so I was is at Breaking Bad she's you know she's the one who knows where all the bodies are buried she knows all the secrets she gets paid very well to keep those secrets and they have a pretty salty you know like an old married couple relationship um the cool thing about Better Call Saul when i got to finally get to get on that show that was they actually explored because it's the you know it's a prequel so it's exploring how he became Saul Goodman, then also following him after he goes into hiding after Breaking Bad. So it's post-Breaking Bad and before Breaking Bad. And there's a couple of little, like, as you watch the seasons, there's a couple of little nuggets where you're in the Breaking Bad world, so to speak, timeline. But what was awesome is my int- you know, I got to find out Francesca's origin story. And she was really sweet. She worked at the, you know, motor vehicles departments. And um, she was just, you know, hard worker and had this, like... <laughs> love of life and so it's it's been fascinating to watch her just get crushed you know
1: into <laughs> the <laughs> into influences the... that yeah that turned her into what we saw in yeah. Breaking Bad which absolutely oh, so do you have any favorite moments for from your time working with Brian Cranston uh, or, oh my or Bob Odenkirk?
0: um so many that's that place was a magical I mean it's the best gig of my life I'm not gonna lie that set is magical. It's one of those sets, those rare sets where everyone from PA to the director to the showrunner, everybody's invested in creating something good and wanting to succeed and really doing the work. Like these are all actors that are, a lot of them are theater people that are really trained in like, let's, you know, and whether or not they're traditionally trained, you know, cause Bob was a stand-up and sketch comedy artist. Like they're all about like, let's, you know, figure out what the scene is. Let's work the scene. Let's run the lines. Let's figure it out so it was an exciting set because it's very live and everybody whether the camera's on you or the camera's on them they're giving as good as it gets like that's what's amazing about it with Cranston I got it was just it was just awesome because you I would sit there sometimes I'd have like two lines like here he comes or like oh my god stop don't go in there you know (laughs) that's the extent of my lines. but I got to watch him work and just watch just kind of see him come from like a totally different scene, walk into this really highly emotional scene and watch him do a theater technique, a breathing technique to get to this emotional place. And I was like, that is so rad. And then I have that big scene with him in season four and dumb fun story is it was the night after the Mavs won their championship and I'm a huge Mavs fan. Mm -hmm. So of course I had this, 5am call the next day. So I was like, you can have one beer and watch the game or whatever, you know, like, and of course my big break, you know, big scene has been, um, but that morning was just so electric just cause he was like, he was, he was into it. Um, and so we would just go back and forth and he'd get really close and he's like, you are, you know, you just start, just start doing all this stuff. Um, and one of the takes he, he decided to go out the the hole he created in the door He got stuck. It was an accident. He wasn't supposed to get stuck. That's the take that kept. Um, Yeah. And and he came back and he's like, that's, he's like, that's so Walt. Like, just so you know, like, of course he gets stuck. Like, he's not smooth. But it's just, it's, that's the thing that's cool is these actors are like, let's go, let's push each other to see what's possible. And, you know, Bob is the same way. Like, he's like, he's like, let's run lines. Let's do this. Let's just keep, let's keep it going. Let's play with this, you know? And So I, I don't know. And, and just watching, just getting to watch those guys create, you know, because a lot of times, like I said, I'll have two lines. So just watching, sitting there and learning, like, look at how he's working the camera. Look at how, you know, doing that, but still pursuing the objective. Um, Look how he's, he knows that angle. That's fantastic. Like, you know, because that's the thing that I still struggle with is like, Cameras on, and you're like, okay, can you not turn your head so far that I can't see your face? You know, you're like, but I'm into it.
1: So our theme for this season of Echo Off Stage is balancing act because mm. a life in the theater often requires juggling. Am I preaching to the choir here? Yeah, juggling many different projects. So mm. how do you balance working in film and 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 television with running, running? a theater in Dallas.
0: You know, what's interesting is people have asked me that before. I've definitely gotten lucky with some timing on certain things. Like, you know, sometimes I would know, oh, this could be happening. So I would try to not make sure that I wasn't directing in that slot or I wouldn't take on any extra projects just because I knew that there was a possibility that, oh, well, I think Breaking Bad is shooting now or I think Saul might be shooting now. So let's try to, you know, but stuff change. I mean, you can you can play that game all you want. They're always going to be like and this weekend, the weekend that you have to watch tech is when you need to come. Um, But uh, I will say because of the limitation on, you know, you do have days off, you have downtime, you have your time is limited and you're also not present in Dallas. So it's like when there's the hey, the toilet is broken or whatever. It's like, guess what? Someone else gets to deal like, you know, it does actually help you with delegating, you know, or helps you with like. Today, this person will do it because I'm not here. Or today, this will happen. Or I have two hours. I have to get all the work done that I need to get done press releases, contracts, whatever. I've got two hours and it gets done. And so you make it happen. Yeah. And what's so crazy is like, you're like, why can't I do this back? <laughs> you know, and it's like, well, because you get, you get, Distractions, or you get like, "Hey, let's talk about this," or "Hey, you know," and those are all great. Or like, "Hey, the like I was saying, the toilet's broken," or whatever. Day to day biz that you've got to deal with. There, you just don't, you can't. You 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 have this limited amount of time. You have this. Maybe you have a set that has limited Wi Fi. I find that if I've got two hours and I've got contracts, press releases, um, whatever things, fires to put out, I've got two hours. This is when it's going to get done, and then I'll call you at lunch. Right. So I wish that I wish that's the thing I wish I could take and learn from the, th- the film life and take over to my real life, because I'm like, why can't I do this back home? Um, so I, I get a lot more done on a set.
1: I'll, I'll be honest. Interesting how when you have to compartmentalize those things, you just figure out a way to make it happen. Um, all, all of us, I think, have uh, the side hustle. You have a great side hustle.
0: <laughs> it, it's not consistent. Let's just put that out there. There are lean years. There are years where nobody wants you. And then there's years where there's like, all right. You know, like you, it's funny because I'll you can scroll through your like your earnings as a, I'm a m- member of SAG, Screen Actors Guild or sag And so you can go like I had to I bought a condo in 2018. So I had to go like, through like all the years. And I was like, wow, that year I made nothing. And then like one year I'd be like, what? what happened that year and it's like oh that's the year that i booked you know it's like anything it's like it's just like the theater like you'll go and audition and you'll get every role and everybody wants you and then you'll go and audition and you're the second choice for you know you just don't
1: get it and that's that's how it works. <laughs> I I tell anybody who wants to do this that it takes more discipline to be an artist than it takes to do anything else, not less discipline, because you know there's that mythology about about theater artists that you know you're willing to starve in a garret, blah, 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 blah. You're never gonna make anything. Except blah. No. Right. And
0: and frankly, like it like I always say this too. It's like, you know, it, and it costs money. Like this that's the thing that's crazy. It's like you need to have updated headshots. I'm not gonna lie. You gotta have an updated resume. <laughs> You know, like I know that we don't go in person anymore, but you need to have good headshots. You need to update your stuff. You need to like, I'm terrible about, you know, uh, know, making a reel like I need to do that. Um, You need to take class and sharpen your skills like there's things, you know, that's basically your calling card. And people are like, I don't need that. And you're like, actually, you do, because that might be the thing that gets you in the room. Like that's, you know, if they look at it and they're like, oh, no, she can't do that. Then you need a shot that shows them you can do it. And that's what and that's what you actually look like, because if you have one from like 10 years ago, and you show up and they're like, uh, "You're old and crackly now. This is not what you look like." You know, um, so and it does, and and there's no way you can talk your way around that.
1: Your no, face no. In your face.
0: <laughs> yeah, and it yeah, and your weight is your weight, and like that's the thing is like the other thing too is like it's discipline. You also got to have a thick skin because you're going to get rejected a lot. You're going to get rejected to your face. You're going to get weird parts that are like really make you reconsider your life, like your life choices or whatever, because. You know, I get parts all the time that are like, you know, she's a fat girl. She's, you know, and like stuff like that or like crazy comments, you know. And so if I was taking this personally, I would I would be majorly depressed. But it's like, this is what I look like. This is awesome. Let's go like, let's does it pay American money? Let's go for it. You know, like, let's figure it
1: out. And, you know, you, you have to go into it with a very keen sense of your own self-worth. Yes. Says, if you don't, it can absolutely destroy you. And eat you alive, like really eat you alive. Yeah, it's brutal. So do you have any other self-care tips for actors? I, you know, one thing I've discovered recently
0: is I really like meditating, it's quite nice. I would say what also inspires me and maybe I'm just... No, because I do have the art history minor is, is immerse yourself in other art forms. Go visit a museum and just sit in there and get inspired. Go to the go to the state fair of Texas and observe people. Take in, get outside of the bubble of the of the black box and breathe in something different, you know? Because that will shape who you are as an artist. It will shape what you create. It makes for a more interesting brew, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like you want, I want, I want a spicy kombucha up in here. So let's go, like, let's, let's pull from all different, like go see a rock show. What inspires you? What, what about that rock show? You know, it's like, why is this, why, why am I feeling this way in the show? How can I translate that into live theater? You know?
1: Well, you never know where that bit of inspiration is going to come from. And I have to say that. I've gotten some tonight. So I want to thank you for that very much. (laughs) We have an audience question. How was your experience on the set of Minari? Fantastic. I have
0: like three lines, but that script was so amazing. And the again, like, you know, like I was saying earlier, like there's certain projects you go on and just like you just feel like it's magic. It's a magic place, like Breaking Bad and Like Saul. Minari was that. It was filmed outside of Tulsa and the writer director. Isaac Chung, it was kind of based on his personal, some of his personal experiences. He just wrote an amazing script. And, and the kind of environment that he created in that room was just magic. Like you really felt like you were in that small town. And, and like, the other thing that was totally inspiring to me is we're in, you know, Oklahoma, right? And no, I'm a Texan so you know whatever I don't mean to throw shade on Oklahoma but Salvy do love Tulsa but I looked around the room and I would say a quarter if not more I want to say more maybe 50 percent like of the production staff, the actors were Asian American. And so that means that a 24 and plan B and, and, you know, I I don't know if it was a directive, like, I don't know if it was like uh, on his writer or whatever, even because it's, you know, it's not a big budget film, but I was like, they put their money where their mouth is. They brought the people in. They had, because there were actors that spoke only, you know, their their first language was Korean. So it's like they, you know, there's production diners that were making the Southern Baptist feast, but they're like, you know, Korean folks or whatever. And then like, the detail with which they made that you know, community table. You're like, there's the ants on a log. There's the jello mold with the fruit salad there. You know, like it was incredible. So I just was really inspired by that. I was like, way to make that happen because it's like that those people don't exist in Oklahoma. So they had to have been brought in. Well, and it was important for the telling of, uh, you know, because it was all about this immigrant story, right? Um, And what it is to be basically to be, try to be an American person or like to become an American, this American dream. So it was, it was I don't know, it was inspiring to see. And the set was just it was magical. I'm so glad that it got out there and it did so well because it was
1: just, it was, he's a he's a, he's a a special talent and he deserves all the success for sure. Well, I'm, as I said, I'm really glad you had that experience and I want to say to Vibe Production Group, thank you so much for sending in that question. If you have a question as a listener that you'd like to have featured on our next episode of Echo Offstage, be sure to follow Echo Theater Dallas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Echo Theater Dallas and watch our story. Our final question for you tonight is... Who is a woman in theater who inspires you?
0: Man, there's a few. I've got a few heroes locally. I would say the first impulse I have is Sally Vale. She's the founder of Kitchen Dog. She is an absolute assassin of every role she does in Dallas. She's a thousand percent about the work and she's a joy to have in the room you know it's one thing to you know t- to be as <laughs> as amazing as she is but she also is just a beautiful soul so I think it's you know if you if the youths out there want somebody to model their career after I would definitely say she's somebody to to look at because she's got the good she's got the talent she's got the training and she's just a nice person too.
1: Tina, thank you so much for being with us tonight. I really appreciate your time. Is there anything that uh, you want to tell us about a project you have coming up let our listeners know where they can find out more about you?
0: Um, Well, I'll just say two things. Kitchen Dog is, we're in our 31st season theater, still alive. We're in our temporary space over at the Trinity River Arts Center. We are going to open the regional premiere of Gary, uh, which is a black, 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 black comedy, uh, gory comedy, nominated for seven Tonys when it was in New York. Uh, That'll open March uh, 18th, run through April 3rd. And then I'm directing... This brand, uh, the main stage of the New Works Festival, which is called High Five, featuring five brand new fl- plays based on the five senses uh, written by five amazing playwrights, two local folks, uh, Jonathan Norton and well, actually three really. Regina Taylor, Jonathan Norton, Matt Lyle, uh, and then uh, Allison Moore and Medalia Cruz. So it's going to be super exciting. That will uh, kick off our New Works Festival in June, which is a whole ball of all sorts of plays and readings and actors and fantasticness. Um, so a lot still to see in season thirty-one. Go to kitchendogtheater.org. Come and join us because we're we're trying to be in person. You know, we'll see how it goes. But those streaming options, if you don't want to,
1: you know, if you don't want to go in person, we got you covered. Again, just love having you with us this evening, and thank you as our listeners for joining us for this episode of Echo Offstage Theater Women Speak. Please be sure to follow Echo Theater Dallas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to submit your own questions for our guests and for exciting news and updates on upcoming podcast readings, and productions. We're a production of Echo Theater in Dallas, Texas, a nonprofit theater dedicated to solely producing works by Women Plus. I'm your host, Katherine Whiteman. Our podcast manager is Eric Berg. Our producer is Lauren Floyd. Our audio engineer and editor is Jonathan Villalobos. Our theme music is by Len Barnett and Brent Nance. Executive produced by Kateri Kale, Managing Artistic Director at Echo Theater. Find out more about Echo and our mission at echotheater.org and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Echo Theater Dallas. Find these links and more info about today's guest in the show notes. Going dark. dark. Thank you, Dark. Thank you, Dark.
0: Now I'm starting to go down this like rabbit hole. Like, oh, and this yeah, lady, right. and this lady, well, and this lady. We just need a like lady tribe to like have a you know burn it down, have a big burning ma- lady, burning man theater, burning woman, <laughs> <laughs> burning woman. Yeah. Okay,
1: I am ready for that. Whatever, let <laughs> me know. Need, we, we need an artistic
0: rotate. retreat where we all get together and decide how we're just going to make this shit happen. Right?
1: Yeah, I like it. I like <laughs> it a lot.